1: all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
2: All right, as the White House continues to field questions, uh, we saw the subject change. We will come back if we need to. We've been watching uh, this briefing from White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre She's faced with this barrage of questions, giving few actual uh, answers after this major development in the investigation into President Biden's handling of classified documents. Uh, I'm Jake Tapper. This is The Lead. Uh, this afternoon, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced he has appointed Robert Herr as a special counsel in this case. Hur is a D.C. lawyer right now. He previously served as a U.S. attorney in Maryland until 2021. He had been appointed by President Trump, the previous administration, uh, the announcement from Garland came just a few hours after the White House announced that classified records had been also found at President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, including some in his garage. This discovery was in addition to the classified records that had been found at Biden's private office in Washington, D.C. As Phil Manningly reports for us now, the White House says it is confident the documents were, quote, inadvertently misplaced.
3: I'm here today to announce the appointment of Robert Hur as a special counsel. For President Biden, the dramatic escalation of a perilous moment. It was in the public interest to appoint a special counsel.
4: Attorney General Merrick Garland appointing former U.S. Attorney Robert Herr as special counsel to investigate the possible mishandling of classified documents and revealing a lot more detail about an issue Biden and his lawyers kept quiet for weeks and have desperately tried to manage since the story broke four days ago. People know
5: I take classified documents and classified materials seriously.
4: The special counsel announcement coming after Biden's second public statement about a second set of classified documents, documents found at a second location. As part of that process, my lawyers
5: reviewed other places where documents my, uh, of, from my time as vice president were stored and they finished the review last night. They discovered a small number of documents of classified markings and storage areas and file cabinets
4: in my home and my, in my, my, my personal library. But Garland's detailed timeline underscoring that at the time of Biden's first statement on the issue earlier this week,
5: and We're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review and which I hope will be finished
4: soon. His lawyers had been aware of the second set of documents discovered at his Wilmington home For nearly a month, it's a timeline that started with the November 2nd discovery of 10 classified documents in a former think tank office, which led Garland to appoint U.S. Attorney John Lausch to investigate the matter less than two weeks later. On December 20th, more documents
3: discovered. President Biden's personal counsel informed Mr. Lausch that additional documents bearing classification markings were identified in the garage of the president's private residence in Wilmington, Delaware. All key factors for what Lausch would recommend to Garland last week. On January 5th, 2023, Mr. Lausch briefed me on the results of his initial investigation and advised me
4: that further investigation by a special counsel was warranted. A recommendation that came four days before the initial discovery of classified documents leaked and before days of White House statements that intentionally avoided key details or obfuscated key matters altogether, in part out of an effort to avoid this very moment, sources said, and to follow strict limits set by his lawyers. I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. As a due diligence search for any more documents was still ongoing. This morning, President Biden's personal
3: counsel called Mr. Lausch and stated that an additional document bearing classification markings was identified at the president's personal residence in Wilmington, Delaware.
4: And, Jake, while there was not a lot of information from White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre's press briefing that has been going on for the last hour, so she did confirm that the at least internal review by President Biden's legal team is complete. There are no more areas that they are going to search. As for the president's position on the special counsel, the White House counsel's office putting out a statement saying, quote, we are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents were inadvertently misplaced, and the president and his lawyers acted promptly upon discovery of this mistake. They pledged full cooperation. Jake.
2: All right. Phil Mattingly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now, Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, the brand new chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Mr. Chairman, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Do you think Attorney General Garland made the right decision appointing the special counsel, not just a special counsel, but one uh, who had previously been a U.S. attorney under Donald Trump?
6: Well, he really had no choice. I mean, because he had so unevenly handled this, I mean, it really is outrageous when you look at what happened with, you know, former President Clinton and Hillary Clinton and thousands of emails uh, and the classified documents on a server in their home, uh, President Trump's house being raided. Um, and then we have now President Biden, when he was vice president, apparently took doc- classified documents that are in his home that he's had for a period of almost six years, maybe longer. We don't know when they came into his possession or when he took them home, mm-hmm. uh, having a, appointed a special prosecutor for the Trump issue, he, he had really no choice to do this. He's already lost a tremendous amount of credibility as a result of the fact that there was uh, such an over-abuse of discretion in the manner in which the Trump uh, matter was handled. So he had now to appoint a special prosecutor.
2: There is a significant difference, of course, in the sense that, look, I'm, classified documents are classified documents. Whoever has them, they should be dealt with appropriately. But uh, from what we can see, President Biden and his team— Telling the National Archives, telling the Justice Department about it, President Trump resisting uh, uh, any negotiations, and also in terms of quantity, it's quite different.
6: Well, first of all, we don't, we don't know how many he started with. There's a number of questions that need to be answered here, but, but we, we actually, you know, with former President Trump, you know, he says he was cooperating all the way to the extent where there was an inspection of where he was holding the documents, and he agreed to put an additional lock on. There were ongoing negotiations, but he also said that these had been, de- been declassified there really here isn't from the aspect of they're, they're, why they're, does he, he have
2: classified because he because a president can just think about them being declassified and that makes he, them declassified he, 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 I mean, did, that's,
6: he did add that as i said with you before that's, that's a, a little, facts-based issue he's going to have to deal with okay with whether or not these were actually uh, declassified but the the issue here is of especially in the like of the in the light of um, just the irony of President Biden being so scathing that these documents were found at Largo and then now he has them in his garage behind his Corvette next to the leaf blower. I mean, when he says that, you know, he took takes uh, classified documents very seriously. You know, when I hear that, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, he's obviously pretty serious when he takes classified documents. The question is, why did he even have them to begin with? Why were they in his home? So you don't believe when it was
2: in, the White House says it
6: was inadvertent, an accident. You don't believe that. Well, what's inadvertent when he took them? When he put them at his home, where were they before they... What is the chain of custody? Where were they before they ended up in the back of his Corvette?
2: What do you say to a critic who says that you sound much more animated about
6: this than you do about the hundreds of boxes of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago? Well, I was very animated then, and I'm I'm animated now. But the issue here is not just the classified documents themselves. The issue also is the abuse of discretion by the Department of Justice, which you and I talked about before a number of times, of the concern of the rating of, uh, of mar The second issue here is the, the irony of the indignation from the Biden administration, the fact that they're the ones that ordered the raid, his political rival, he ordered the raid on, on you know, uh, the attorney general ordered the raid on his home. This is how outrageous th- this is. Imagine if someone at this point said, well, there were classified documents found at Biden's home. Let's go look in Jill's closet. Well, as you know, they looked in Melania's closet. Mm-hmm. The behavior of the Department of Justice and the FBI was so outrageous which you now, before we were declaring it outrageous and, and abuse of discretion, now when you look at the comparison between the two, it even sheds light on really how outrageous it was. But
2: I, again, I would say that what, from what we know, and again, this is about what politicians tell us, but from what we know, the Biden people told the National Archives, told the Justice Department, said we have these and gave them over, and from what we know about the Trump case— the Justice Department was told about it, and the Trump people resisted it and did not turn over these documents to the point that the FBI felt that they had to go there uh, and get the documents back. And the only reason we know about that is because Trump announced it.
6: Okay, well, there's a couple things here that you're missing. You know, one, <clears throat> there were a number of documents that were surrendered in those negotiations, and But not secondly, all of them. That was and the point. secondly, the documents that had not yet been surrendered there in the Biden team. Uh, team, excuse me, the Trump's team view, they were in ongoing negotiations where they even secured the facility further. Now, on the uh, Biden team, the only reason you and I know about it is because somebody leaked it. They didn't go and say, "Oh, oh, this is inadvertent. We've now discovered this. It was leaked. And then now they're telling there's more and there's additional ones. And then just the callousness of this being in boxes in the back of the garage shows you um, the, the The disparate treatment between the two, the um, the irony between the Biden administration's treatment of Trump and the fact that this is now an issue for President Biden, I think is something that the American people take note of.
2: So um, I do want to ask you, because you're a new chairman, we've talked about this before, um, the top Democrat and Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner and Marco Rubio, I'm sure they disagree on a lot of things, but that committee, at least from where I sit, Seems to operate in a functionally bipartisan way. They seem to cooperate a lot. They seem to try to work together a lot. The House Intelligence Committee, and you're just the fresh chairman, so I'm not holding you responsible. I don't for have a right member yet. You, right, but you will be. The, but the House Intelligence Committee hasn't operated like that since the days of Mike Rogers and different Mike Rogers than the guy who got in the yeah. fight with uh, Gates, uh, Congressman Mike Rogers of Michigan and, and Dutch Ruppersberger. Years. It's been years since the House Intelligence Committee operated in in a bipartisan way. Is it your goal to do that? Or do you see the House Intelligence Committee the same way that, I guess, Jim Jordan looks at the Judiciary Committee? It's an operation. It's a place for for the party in charge to be in charge.
6: Well, and and I've told you before, and this is something I don't just think is a goal. I think we're going to achieve it. And that is the Intelligence Committee is going to be focusing back on issues of classified information and on, on national security. Um, Senator Warner and I have had a number of meetings, we're even going to go the part of not just working on a bipartisan basis, but on bicameral. And I believe the members of the committee, both Republican and Democrat, are ready for this committee to regain its focus. My hope, and in many of these things that, that are, are being discussed that have a number of overlapping committee jurisdictions, is that some of these areas will not be areas where our committee is handling them. We're only going to be handling with respect to national security, with respect to classified information. And these other committees are going to be better suited. First off, they're public, so when they have a hearing, everybody gets to see. And the other aspect is is that uh, some of these overlapping areas of jurisdiction are true oversight of areas of the government that really aren't in our committee's jurisdiction.
2: Yeah. Do you know who the top Democrat's going to be on intelligence?
6: No. uh, There's a a couple names out there, and I'm certainly looking forward to working with my counterpart.
2: Okay. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mike Turner, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Coming up... Former House Speaker Paul Ryan is going to weigh in on Biden's classified documents and Trump's and concessions made by the current House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to get that gavel. Also oh, ahead, sure Republican Congressman George lines. Santos continuing to resist growing calls to resign. What he says it will take for him to step down. And we're back with our politics lead, the new special counsel investigating President Biden's handling of classified documents. Let's discuss With our all-star team here, CNN's Evan Perez and Jamie Gangel and Carrie Cordero, former national security attorney at the Justice Department. Evan, first of all, before we get to what happened today, I want you to give me a little reality check on what you heard from the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, who made it sound as though Trump was cooperating, Trump wasn't doing anything wrong when it came to all the classified documents in his possession. He was bending over backwards to, to work with the Justice Department and what Biden did was very egregious.
7: It's just not true. I mean, uh, the former president has fought every step of the way. He uh, filed a, a lawsuit in court in Florida, uh, which forced the Justice Department to, to show a lot more of his investigation, right? Uh, they showed the search warrant. They showed pictures and so on. All of those things came about because the former president went public and, and, and was fighting along the way. He is to this very day in court trying to fight aspects of this for for instance the justice department is simply trying to get the trump team to say there are no more documents right um and this is a fight that is actually still happening in court in behind the scenes at the federal court here in washington so the idea that the former president has been cooperative (laughs) is just far from the truth
2: so let's talk about the current president uh this process how is it going to play out
7: well you know the the problem as i think we all know with special counsels is that they uh, are easy to appoint, perhaps, um, as we have seen, and they're hard to get rid of. And that's one of the reasons why Attorney General Merrick Garland, you know, was hesitant to do the first one on Donald Trump and felt he was forced to because of the, the situation of Donald Trump running for president and uh, against his boss. And then he was forced to, to do this one. Once he received the the recommendation from John Lausch, the, the U.S. attorney in Chicago, with the facts of, of what he had found the Attorney General felt he had to take this step. Uh, it didn't, of course, help that the the, the, the Biden White House has had trouble uh, putting out a straightforward timeline of what was found and when, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly, I think the Attorney General made a quick decision, uh, Jake, uh, uh, about what to do. The problem is, uh, as you know, I mean, uh, John Durham is still around, right? As a special counsel appointed three right. years ago. So that's the reason why it's difficult to put a timeline on these things.
2: Yeah, people might not remember Ken Starr, but I think the original... Uh, charge was not to be looking into uh, whatever President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky were doing. I think it was about Whitewater, the land right. deal. Right. But in any case, uh, back to this. Um, do you think President Biden is going to talk to the special counsel? Is he going to be interviewed?
8: Well, uh, that's a question for the investigation in terms of whether they think that there is a reason to talk to him. My guess would be that what they're going to do is first they're going to talk to everybody else. So I would think that the investigators would leave a current president to the very final person that they would investigate if they think they need a reason to uh, interview him. I mean, interview um, and so first they're gonna to talk to all the eight. I think one of the complications in this particular investigation is the time lapse. I mean, this is now we're talking years that these documents have been in these locations, presumably since the time that he was vice president. And so in some ways it's a harder investigation Uh, than the former President Trump investigation, because there's just much more time. They have to go back and find people who were involved in the handling of these documents many years ago. But I think President Biden would be one of the last, if not the last person that they would come to if they need to.
1: And,
2: And Jamie, put this into context for us. How unusual is it two presidents being investigated by two different special counsels, both of them, about their handling of classified information?
9: In a word, never. Right. It's never happened before. Let me just big picture. When when you talk to former presidents, vice presidents, people at the archives, it is true. Unclassified papers, things happen. Folders go astray. Mistakes are made. Honest mistakes are made. But looking back, we've reached out. You know, Bush forty one, Bush forty three, Clinton, Obama, uh, Quayle, Cheney. We we've never seen anything like this before. Can I just go back to the word cooperation here? You know, when you were talking to Chairman Rogers, the reality is that this is one area where these two things are completely different. We don't know yet what's in the second batch of documents that were found, how sensitive it is, what the national security implications were. But as soon as they discovered there was a problem, they immediately cooperated and and. That day called and immediately turned things over.
2: Yeah. We still don't know, though, Evan, uh, if there are other classified documents out there in the in the president's possession, President Biden's possession or anywhere else.
7: Right. The representation from the White House um, is that uh, they've completed a search of all of the possible places they can think of that would be relevant. Um, the question, Jake, is going to be when the special counsel sets up his office and he gets his FBI people who are going to be doing this thing, is, you know, how do you make sure that that's true, right? And do you get a representation from the president and his team that we can swear that there are no more documents? Um, or do they ask to go take a look? And, and those are going to be sensitive questions that are going to have to be approached. Uh, the only reason why Donald Trump's house was searched in the way it was is because they clearly had refused to turn over documents, and they knew documents were being moved after being told not to.
8: Well, and that's why I think uh, Jamie's point is so important as these investigations continue, because the most important thing that the Justice Department is going to have to flesh out is the intent. All of the criminal statutes that deal with the handling or the mishandling of classified information in some way point to whether the conduct was knowing, whether the conduct was willful, whether there was an intent to mishandle or remove classified documents in an unauthorized way. And so both investigations um, of both the former president and the current president's handling of these classified documents is going to hinge on whether or not people were intentional in their mishandling or whether it was all a big accident.
9: Fair or not, politically, there is going to be a constant comparison between Trump and Biden.
2: All right, Jamie Carey, Evan, thanks so much for being here. Coming up next, the growing calls for Republican Congressman George Santos to resign and why the magic number to watch here might just be 142. Why? We'll tell you. Today, embattled Republican Congressman George Santos is remaining defiant, dismissing the growing calls to resign from his fellow Republicans. And refusing to answer where more than $700,000 he donated to his own campaign originally came from. But as CNN's Manu Raji reports, Santos says there is one way that he'll be willing to consider leaving office.
10: Freshman Congressman George Santos defiant. I will be continuing to hold my office elected by the people. Facing growing GOP calls for his resignation over his web of lies, but saying he is not going anywhere after winning 142,000 votes last fall
0: 142 people asked for me to resign altogether
10: refusing to answer CNN's questions about why he fabricated major portions of his life story Mr. Santos why did you lie to your voters about your qualifications your past being Jewish why did you lie to them both the voters deserve an explanation about your widespread lies about your past how can you be trusted with sensitive security information, Mr. Santos? Telling a fellow Republican that he has been honest.
0: Look, I've, I've worked my entire life. I've lived an honest life. I've never been uh, accused, sued, of, of any bad doing.
10: Yet Santos has admitted to lying, including by saying he's Jewish and that his family survived the Holocaust, that he owned 13 properties, that he worked for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs even saying he graduated from the top of his class at Baruch College and was a star volleyball player, none of which is true.
11: He's lost the confidence of, of people in his own community. So, I, you know, I think he needs to seriously consider whether or not he can actually do his job effectively. and. Right now, it's pretty clear
10: he can't. So are you saying that he should resign? There's no way I I believe he can fully fulfill his responsibilities. The fact that uh, he claimed that he was Jewish, uh, that he had family who uh, escaped the Holocaust, that's just not something that I can tolerate. Yet he has critical support from Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who will not call on him to resign. The voters of his district have elected him. He is seated. He is part of the Republican conference. Some raising national security concerns, given Santos is potentially facing fraud charges in Brazil. He's got a long way to go to earn trust. There are concerns with it, so he will go before ethics. If anything is found to be have wrong, he will be held
4: accountable exactly as anybody else in this body would be.
10: If Santos resigned, he'd vacate district President Biden won by eight points, giving Democrats a chance to cut into McCarthy's razor-thin House majority. Is this someone who you trust to have access to the nation's secrets? Well, we'll, we'll, I I think we'll still keep looking at this
6: and get the facts.
10: Now, there is one New York Republican who is not calling on Santos to, to resign. That is Elise Stefanik, who is a member of the House Republican leadership, she, who also raised money for Santos in this past election cycle. Uh, she was asked by her colleague Melanie Zonona whether or not she agrees with these calls for him to resign. Says She said it will play itself out. She called him a duly elected member of Congress. She said there are Democrats who have faced investigations before, but she would not say whether she agrees, whether, whether she still supports him or not, or any of the conversations she's had. He said, I'm not going to get into any private conversations,
2: Jake. All right, Mani Raju on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Coming up next, what former Speaker Paul Ryan is going to say and what he thinks about calls for Congressman Santos to resign. Plus, Paul Ryan, does he think that Speaker McCarthy gave away too much power? Stay with us. It is House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's first full week on the job and in a news conference Today. Speaker McCarthy pledged that Republicans will not let Democrats, quote, spend money wastefully. That, after McCarthy promised to tie raising the debt ceiling to specific spending cuts, setting up what will likely become a fiscal showdown between the two parties and between the House and Senate later this year. Let's get some reaction on this and all the busy news in Washington from somebody who knows a little bit about the job. And that's where and joining us now is the former Speaker of the US House of Representatives, Paul Ryan. Good to see you, sir. Thanks for being you. here. Appreciate Good it. Nice to be here. Uh, I want to get to Kevin McCarthy in a moment, but first, with all this news about classified documents, whether President Biden or President Trump, I want to just ask you as somebody who, when you were Speaker of the House, had access yeah, yeah. to classified documents, if you could like give us some sort of insight into how easy or
12: not or difficult it might be to actually accidentally or... No, I never took them home. I left them in my safe in the office. Is that right? Uh, and they went from my safe in the office down to the skiff and then back to the safe in the office. So I never, I never took them on my body. They were in locked briefcases, so I never even took them out of the office. But I guess it would be different if you're president, maybe? I'm trying to figure it out, whether you're Trump I guess or it's Biden. The, it's, it's the system you put in place in your office, I guess. And you had a rigid system. I had a rigid system, which they went from the intelligence community to a safe in my office that one cleared staffer of mine had access to. We would take them from the safe down to the skiff, which is, you know, underground in the Capitol. I would read them there, discuss them there, have my briefings there. We'd go back to the office and they'd go in that safe, in either in the skiff safe or in the safe in my office. And they would know, go nowhere else. Sounds like a pretty good process. So that's the way we did things, yeah. <laughs> okay,
6: so.
2: let's talk about uh, the house race uh, because this hasn't happened. We saw something last week that hasn't happened in... A hundred years, and and longer if you want to go to to the number of ballots, uh, a a serious battle on the floor of the House to be Speaker of the House, and some very serious personal criticisms of the man who ultimately uh, won election, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, including about whether or not he's trustworthy and the like. As a friend of his, as somebody who was Speaker when he was House uh, Majority Leader, um, what was going through your mind when you watched it all play out?
12: I thought he was going to gut it out. I didn't think it'd take... 15 votes. So I suppose between like vote four and 14, I wasn't so sure, but I still thought he, there was no alternative. So because there was really no alternative, that's kind of, the dynamic was different when I was there because I was seen as the alternative and I was not looking for the job. I sort of got drafted into it. Um, But that, there was no dynamic like that at, at play here. And Kevin had done so much more First of all, remember, I came midterm. So Boehner, it was a motion to vacate was being placed upon Boehner. So I came midterm. Kevin had just worked his tail off to campaign and fundraise to build this majority over two cycles, and he did that. So it's a different dynamic than what occurred in 2015 with me, which was Kevin was the leader of the conference as a minority leader for two cycles, built that majority, and then there really wasn't another alternative for people to go to. So I really thought that he would get through it um, even with this t- tough margin. I just didn't think it'd take 15 votes and all those concessions that it took, but it did.
2: Um, there's this moment, well, to show it right now, where obviously we're Armed Services Committee uh, Chairman yeah, Mike I, I, Rogers. You don't even have to show
12: me the picture. I've seen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there he is lunging at uh, Congressman Matt Gaetz uh, after Gaetz um, did not vote aye, uh, thus uh, stopping McCarthy from winning on the 14th ballot. Does this bode ill for your party's ability to unite and actually govern?
12: Look, no, I mean, Mike's. these guys are good. That's Richard Hudson behind them, very good friends of mine. Um, Richard's a good friend of Mike's. Mike just got hot under the collar. He just got, you know, for, they were pretty exasperated by that time. And my understanding is Matt Gates was going to vote for him on the 14th vote and then change his mind in the vote without telling anybody. That makes people pretty upset. So, look, hot heads happen. Things like that occur. By the way, that's what the floor is like when you ever have any contentious vote. I just know C-SPAN usually doesn't cover that because of the cameras, but it's always like that on the so floor should we have the when
2: t- you have difficult votes. Gates wants the cameras, and I have to say I support No, I, I'm not a, I'm not a fan, not a of, fan of, the the of the
12: performance art that has overtaken our politics and the entertainment wings of both of our parties. Yeah. This would just feed into that. So, no, I'm actually not a fan of that. But that is what the floor is like when you have tough, contentious votes. I've seen that movie a million times over. You just haven't seen it on C-SPAN. And no, I don't want to see the cameras do that because people are going to play to the cameras on the floor of Congress like they play to the cameras everywhere else they do in politics these days. Well,
2: the counterargument would be you also see the humanity yeah, of Democrats get that, and Republicans but I, sitting I together. I think we have a little
12: too much entertainment in politics these days, so I'd frankly like to see that toned down. I don't want to add more gas to that fire. Such a buzzkill.
2: Um, <laughs> McCarthy made so many concessions to this wing, the Chip Roy, Matt Gates, whoever, whatever however you want to call it, these insurgents, these rebels— um, to, and he made these concessions to get their votes, and without question, the concessions weakened the speakership and empowered individual members. The motion to vacate you mentioned, yeah. which yeah. got rid of John Boehner, is now back to one vote mm-hmm. uh, as it was before. But there are other other things in terms of who's on the rules committee, uh, opening up the process, uh, anybody can offer a bill, anybody can offer an amendment.
12: I like some of those, by the way.
2: Some of those are pretty good. Well, the 72-hour one is a great one. The idea that you need 72 hours to read a bill before you can vote on it. No, but the
12: appropriations ones, I like that. So, frankly, I I think, I didn't want to cut you off at your question, but let me say this. I think I had too much power as speaker. Oh, really? I really do. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the thing that bothered me the most were these omnibuses. Um, You know, a bill that thick that four people ultimately decide on. Fifteen spending bills crunched together. Twelve crunched together and... And it's, it's, it's thousands of pages. It would be myself, Nancy, Chuck, and Mitch. I'm sorry, the, the House Speaker, the know Leader. About. You yeah, know yeah. what I'm talking about. They were your friends. Basically, well, yeah. some of them are. Ish. Yeah. Ish, ish. I, we all got along. We all yeah. respected one another. The problem is no four people should be doing all of that, making those decisions. And, you know, frankly, I was making decisions on composition of spending bills. Um, you know, I think I'm a smart, principled person, but the guy... And the, and the man and the woman who's in the committee, in the subcommittee, spending two years reading Inspector General reports, GAO reports on those, they should be making those decisions, not kicked up to elected leadership. Are there any new rules or rule changes
2: that concern you in terms of the free-for-all, in terms of whether or not what we
12: saw last week is going to be kind of like the new normal? I think the vacate has become weaponized now. It's become normalized as an activity. I never worry worried about this myself, frankly, uh, but that was just kind of my own dynamic, I suppose. But I think members now see this as sort of a tool they can take for a ride. Um, I think that's bad for the institution. The last thing John Boehner, literally the last words John Boehner said to me as he walked out the door of his smoke-filled office that that I took over was, don't forget your number one job is to preserve this institution, defend the institution. And if you're a committee chair, which is what I was, as chair of Ways and Means at the time, I never really thought about that. Most members don't think about the institution. Right. You're thinking about your policy agenda or whatever it is you want to get done in Congress. That's not normally what you're thinking of. So I became a big institutionalist, but it took me a little while once I became speaker because I realized just how important for our freedom and our liberty and our democracy this is. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to ask uh, Speaker
2: Ryan about his party's trouble with persuasion, and I'm going to ask him if he thinks Congressman George Santos should resign after being caught in lie after lie after lie. Stick with us. We'll be right back. And we're back with more of my exclusive interview with former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Let's talk about your book, American Renewal: A Conservative Plan to Strengthen the Social Contract and Save the Country's Finances. We are. Uh, currently economists say whether we're in a recession or not, they're definitely headed into something called a slow session. Yeah. Uh, this morning, new inflation numbers showed the surge in prices fading slightly. Inflation still yeah. a-, a threat. Um, what, if you were advising Kevin McCarthy in the House Republicans right now, what would you tell them to do about the U.S. economy? Yeah,
12: they, they know what I think. I'm still friends with these guys. Uh, I think Look, what I, what I say in this book is, first of all, the best case for America is a really long lost generation, a stagflation that is going to last more than just like a Japanese lost decade if we don't get our act together. That's the best case scenario. We're likely to have more of a debt crisis, which CBO talks about and projects, which is really ugly. That means the social contract is unaffordable. That means if you think we're polarized today, wait till we have a debt crisis, So what we're putting in this book are all the solutions we think are necessary to make sure that we can make good on our social contract, which I would argue, center left and center right, we agree on. We want health and retirement security. We want a safety net. We believe in Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid. So let's make these things solvent. Let's make them work better. Let's make them guaranteed for the current retirees and make them solvent for the next generation so that they're there when we retire. That takes persuasion politics. So- I know that when you
2: were speaker and Donald Trump was president, you guys would talk about this (laughs) and he did not understand why you would ever want to do it because it's bad politics. That's right. That's right. He just
12: didn't think it was ever popular.
2: And he has, and I'm not blaming this all on him, but he has certainly empowered the kind of populism you're talking about, smash mouth clicks, cable hits on Fox, et cetera, where you're a board member, by the way, um. He has popularized that. He has empowered that. We saw it last week. So how can this be achieved even within the Republican yeah. Party before you even
12: get to the Democrats? A couple things. He's fading fast. He's a proven loser. He cost us the House at 18. He cost us the White House in 20. He cost us the Senate again and again. And I think we all know that. And I think we're moving past Trump. I really think that's the case. I, do, I can't imagine him getting the nomination, frankly. And I, I don't mean this because I, I don't want him to get the nomination. I just don't think he will as an analytical point. the The thing that's... that I take solace in with all the machinations you saw last week, most of that wasn't personal. Most of that was around fiscal responsibility. Most of that was about a concern about spending, inflation, and debt. That's great. I think you need to persuade the country as to the solutions and the problem, and I don't think brinksmanship solves those things. But what's behind that is a good thing, which is, Republicans finally reacquiring their moorings on the party of fiscal responsibility and limited government. That, to me, is the good thing that I see in all of this weird stuff. That's the good thing. So the yeah. question is, can we, put, a very
2: positive interpretation. can we put form
12: and substance? Yeah, well, I'm a Republican. <laughs> I, I, I am not a member of an organized party. I am a Republican. <laughs> That's yeah, very it's, nice. It's, Little Will Rogers Will for Rogers. you. So the point I'm trying to make is those juices are flowing and that is churning. And I think we're, we're hopefully coming back full circle to being... Yeah, maybe a populist party. That's great and fine. I want to be popular, but principled and and with policies that solve problems and with governance. Yeah, and was, fiscal conservatism is is was a theme that you saw be, behind all of those tactics. Sure, that's when, a good thing. When Congressman Chip Roy was on uh, State of the Union
2: on Sunday, he said, "We know this debt crisis is coming with a debt ceiling. I like vote. hearing that. Let's get re- let's get
12: working on it now, right. as opposed to July. Right. I, well, I don't think you'll fix it with a debt crisis, but no. I think you you need to go persuade the country and offer solutions and having gavels and chairmanships I had two of them that's what you do you build the case at ways and means and financial services and budget committee you show the public what it, what's what's going on and why our solutions are better and why frankly if you just whistle past the graveyard and ignore these problems you're hurting Americans. You're hurting the social well. Your kids and, and my kids. The social the, contract. Yeah. yeah, not just our kids, but seniors. Sure. So that's. that's well, the, I
2: meant like when you and I are seniors. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's that's what I was referring to. Last quick question, Congressman George Santos. He's lied about uh, apparently everything on his resume. Uh, at least uh, six House Republicans have said he should resign, including five New York Republicans. Do you
12: agree? Sure. Yeah. Sure, I agree. My guess is they'll probably let the budget ethics committee run its course. It's it's a fraudulent candidacy. This isn't a embellished candidacy to fraudulent candidacy. He hoaxed his voters. So, of course, he should step down. He doesn't strike me as an honorable person, though. I don't know the guy. So my guess is it will probably go through the ethics course. I can't imagine the guy's going to stay very long. All right. Former House Speaker Paul Ryan, good to see you, sir. Thanks for being here. Good to see you, Jake.
2: Coming up, another big interview. Texas Governor Greg Abbott's going to join me as he pushes President Biden to try to get a hold on the number the record number of migrants crossing into his state and the humanitarian crisis it's causing in American cities. Stay with us. Welcome to the Lead Dick Tapper this hour. The suspect in the murders of the four University of Idaho students returns to court. We'll tell you what happened and why we won't see him back in court for another six months. Plus, thousands of migrants still crossing into the United States every day. With no clear solution to this crisis on the table, and there's plenty of finger pointing from both sides, Texas Governor Greg Abbott will join us live this hour. But first, Attorney General Merrick Garland has named former Trump U.S. Attorney Robert Herr as special counsel to take over the investigation into the classified documents found at Joe Biden's home and former private office. The Department of Justice announcement came just hours after the White House Counsel's Office issued a statement saying that more documents with classified markings have been found in a storage area in the garage at President Biden's Wilmington, Delaware home, as well as in another room adjacent to the garage. It's the same garage where Biden keeps that 1967 Corvette.
5: And by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage, okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the
13: street. So the material was in a locked garage?
5: Yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, but as I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified materials seriously. I also said we're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review.
2: Let's start with CNN's Chief White House Correspondent Phil Manningly. Phil, the White House is now facing some tough questions about when they publicly acknowledge the second set of documents.
4: Yeah, that's right, Jake. Look, the White House has been very clear that they have been cooperating throughout the course of this investigation as it's been ongoing since those documents were first discovered on November 2nd. They say they have been transparent with the Justice Department and the National Archives as well. They also say they've been transparent publicly. That is a little bit less true when you look at how things have progressed. And frankly, when you get a detailed picture from Attorney General Merrick Garland today about that timeline when he announced uh, the appointment of the special prosecutor. Garland saying that, yes, those first documents were found on November 2nd. Uh, The Justice Department was first aware of it starting on November 4th. But that second set of documents was found on December 20th. The White House did not acknowledge that second set of documents until this morning. The president speaking about them as well this morning. Keep in mind, the president talked about the first set of documents earlier this week when news first broke on those documents, same with the White House counsel's office. When those statements were given, the print statement from the White House counsel's office, the president's remarks in Mexico City, neither of them mentioned the possibility of a second set of documents being out there, even though White House officials had been aware those documents existed in a second location and had been turned over to the authorities almost a month prior. So there are very real questions about the public messaging from the White House at this point, but also very real questions about what happens next. To some degree, the scale of the cooperation, the willingness from the uh, president's personal attorneys and president's team to immediately hand over documents. Uh, We are told that some individuals uh, tied to the vice president's office when these documents originated have been interviewed by the attorney, uh, the special, uh, sorry, the U.S. attorney that had been in the process of conducting the review up to this point. They have been cooperating throughout what they have not been able to do is explain publicly what is actually happening, and this certainly has gotten more serious based on the attorney general's actions today, Jake.
2: Philip, what is the White House Counsel saying about the appointment today of this uh, special counsel, uh, Robert Hur? You
4: know, the White House Counsel's office has made clear they have been cooperating throughout. They plan to continue to do so, and saying, "quote We are confident that a thorough review will show that these documents." were inadvertently misplaced, and the president and his lawyers acted promptly upon the discovery of this mistake, saying that these documents from the vice president's time in office were inadvertently put there, saying this was a mistake, going a little bit further than they have up to this point, maintaining they will continue to cooperate. But Jake, as you know, a special counsel is a very different ball game than a U.S. attorney review, how they operate going forward. Obviously, we'll have to wait and see.
2: All right, Phil, stand by. Let's discuss with our panel right now. And Evan, you have some new uh, reporting about Attorney General Garland's decision to appoint the special counsel.
7: Well, Jake, he made the decision uh, very soon after he received the the recommendation from John Lausch, the the U.S. attorney in Chicago, who had been doing the initial, the preliminary uh, review of this. And and look, I you know for for the Attorney General, it, it felt like it was a, a slam down case. That they had to do this given the, the the facts of the matter, especially given the fact that he had already had a special counsel looking into Donald Trump's mishandling of, of, of classified information. But the timeline here is also important to, to reinforce here. The fact that the Justice Department uh, was notified by the president's team on uh, December 20th that there had been additional documents found. And yet, you know, when the president spoke about this in the last few days, you know, they omitted any mention of that, provided any, uh, perhaps misleading and an incomplete picture, reinforced the reason why. The attorney general felt he had to do this hmm. uh, this move.
2: Interesting. Uh, and Tom Dupree, uh, you and the new special counsel Robert Hur. You've been working together at the same uh, law firm. Tell us about him.
14: Sure, uh, Jake. I know Rob both as a friend and as a colleague for many years. I think this was an excellent choice by Merrick Garland. I think Rob Hur is the perfect choice for this job. Rob is an exceedingly smart lawyer. He has excellent strategic and legal instincts and judgment. And he's a man of the highest integrity. So this is clearly an exceedingly delicate political task, to say the least. Complex legal questions are going to be posed. But I can't imagine a better person to serve as a special counsel than Robert Hur.
2: And, Audie, I have to say, all of this happened after Hillary Clinton got in hot water for her handling of classified information. So I'm surprised at the situation that Joe Biden finds himself in, the fact that there wasn't the kind of rigid process that we heard Speaker Ryan talk about how, when it came to how he handled classified documents.
1: Um, I, I think that you can go in the history and find a lot of incidents administratively where people brought documents home. And that's why the National Archives has this system of pursuing and requesting them. And it's important to realize that this was a s- issue that was sort of um, a self owned for Trump, so to speak, where Democrats could say, look, you didn't have to take these home, but you also didn't have to fight the archives to send them back. You didn't have to fight subpoenas. Your lawyers didn't have to lie about whether or not there were more. So some of it was the idea that it represented recklessness and recalcitrance. Now this makes it more complicated if you wanted to use that as a symbol to all of a sudden have your own problem. And I think that's why the White House is struggling.
2: And, and Phil, I have to say, um, the, the the basic rule of, of crisis management in Washington is, get it all out, get it all out on your own terms, get it all out uh, immediately. Uh, And that's not what the White House is doing.
4: Right. And I think that's been kind of the perplexing element of the last several hours is the fact that not only was the special counsel at the White House willing to put out a very detailed statement regarding those first, that first discovery of 10 classified documents, then the president weighed in on them and there was no illusion whatsoever. Now, keep in mind, throughout that period of time, we were asking, does this mean there are no others? Is the search over? We knew that there was a search by the president's legal team underway. Had that uh, been completed at this point in time, it never got any firm answers. Now we know why. And I think the problem right now is As Evan notes, this is a very different element that this process has moved into right now. And I think where there was goodwill about willingness to talk about things, willingness to be transparent, that has certainly dissipated based on what we've seen over the course of the last four days.
2: Yeah. And and as you alluded to, Evan, uh, I mean, appointing a special counsel is kind of like the guy that ran Jurassic Park thinking that he's safe because he only cloned female dinosaurs. Remember, Jeff Goldblum says life finds a way. Special counsels find a way. They end up doing whatever they want to do.
7: Right. It's very hard to unwind a special counsel. And that's one reason why, you know, Merrick Garland uh, certainly uh, has a reluctance about using them. He was forced into doing the first one because Donald Trump declared for presidency against his boss. And of course, once you have that one, you needed to do this one. And so uh, I think, you know, let's remember there is still a third special counsel that is still in existence three years later, that is John Durham. So That's the issue with this. The timeline is one where we're all looking at the clock. Uh, There's an election that is coming up in a couple of years. And certainly, I think the Justice Department hopes that this can be wrapped up to try to get out of the way of that election. But things get complicated when you least expect them to.
2: And Tom, we're hearing a lot from Republicans on Capitol Hill about what they see as a double standard when it comes to Biden versus Trump and, and classified documents. Do you think that's fair?
14: You know, I think there is some truth to that. In other words, the conduct, the underlying conduct in kind is the same, although the scale differs and there are certainly facts that make the two situations different. I suspect a lot of those distinctions may be lost on a lot of the American public who just see this as a case of hiding classified documents. But if I were in the Biden camp, I would hit two points. Number one, I would say the scope of the documents that Biden concealed were much smaller than the scope of documents Trump concealed. And number two, the point about cooperation is that the Biden team has said we're cooperating from day one. And they're going to use that point to try to contrast it to what President Trump did.
1: And also to add to that, you know, I was looking at at Twitter and uh, Stephen Miller, the the senior advisor to Trump at one point, said that if Garland wants to demonstrate balance, that means appointing hardcore Republican uh, special counsel with a mandate to limitly investigate every aspect of Biden's life. I don't know what hardcore means. I don't know who would decide what that is. And it really signals that the whole point of the special counsel concept is to have someone who is perceived to be independent. But in this environment, there is no such thing. There is always going to be someone who says, this person is insufficient for whatever reason to kind of undermine the process. And I don't think that's helpful for the public.
2: But as you know, and you work with Robert Herr, Robert Hur was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, which I'm sure was part of the reason why Merrick Garland appointed him, so it wouldn't be like, you know, uh, Lanny Davis. Uh, look,
12: that, look. R- Robert Hur is
2: no political hack. I mean, this guy is over. credential
1: I don't know. Well, he's just smart.
7: Whatever he's got integrity, means. and
14: that's what yeah. I care about. I mean, look, it, it's hard to criticize the guy. You look at his credentials, his background, what he's done in the past. He's a straight shooter, and I'm totally confident he's going to do exactly as he said, which is follow this investigation fairly and fully.
2: Well, except unless if President Biden doesn't end up in the stockade, by the end of it, Stephen Miller will say he's not hardcore enough. Uh, Phil, President Biden has been uh, leaning toward running for a second term, according to White House sources. Are there any indications that this is giving his uh, political team or the president second thoughts at all?
4: You know, it's early. Uh, There's no question about that. The president didn't even find out about this uh, until after he was done speaking at former uh, Defense Secretary Ash Carter's funeral service earlier today. They weren't given a heads up. And so obviously you have to see how this plays out. One thing I would note, if you want a split screen of what the White House thought this week was going to be versus what it is now, the president's comments this morning, his actual prepared remarks were about inflation that had decelerated for a sixth consecutive month. The grip of the primary issue they'd been dealing with throughout the course of the last year is finally starting to ease. They really felt like they were hitting a period of time, both on the economy and more broadly on their legislative agenda as it's implemented, where they were going to be in a very great place if he decided to give them the green light, which is what his advisors have expected. Obviously, this throws a wrinkle in things. We'll see to what degree that uh, wrinkle shows up in the coming weeks.
2: All right. Thanks, one and all, for being here. And a quick reminder, look for Audi Cordish's uh, podcast, The Assignment, wherever you download your podcasts. It's fantastic. The latest edition focuses on people suffering suffering from long COVID, a very important issue. Coming up, he handed President Biden a letter during Biden's border visit on Sunday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott will join us live next. Then, as more of his peers call for his resignation, Republican Congressman George Santos says there is only one thing that would make him resign. Stay with us. Topping our national lead, a new temporary processing center for migrants in El Paso has been opened. U.S. officials say the tent like facility can hold Up to 1,000 more migrants as people line up in freezing temperatures to turn themselves into U.S. immigration authorities. Let's bring in CNN's Priscilla Alvarez. And and Priscilla, uh, the administration, the Biden administration, has rolled out a patchwork of border policies. But this is really all just a Band-Aid on this larger crisis. Is there any discussion among lawmakers in the White House that suggests any real meaningful potential uh, immigration legislation that might get passed?
15: Well, discussions are certainly underway. Just this week, we saw a bipartisan group of senators visit the U.S.-Mexico border, and that included Senators Tillis and Sinema, two senators who have previously worked on a framework for reform just last month. But the reality of the situation, Jake, is that it is going to be incredibly difficult to pass any reform, especially with the Republicans holding the majority in the House. It is unlikely that far-right members will reach any consensus with Democrats. But the White House is still calling for that reform. And the reason it's so urgent, Jake, is because the U.S. immigration system is buckling. It is just not equipped nor prepared for the number of people who are arriving on a daily and at this point yearly basis, the demographics, for example, have changed dramatically amid mass movement in the Western hemisphere. And it's just not equipped to meet those needs. Now, President Biden, as you mentioned, has been rolling out policies, some of which controversial and some of which have been from almost very similar to the Trump era. For example, he is expanding the use of that Trump era COVID restriction known as Title 42 to include other nationalities. His administration is also uh, planning to release an asylum regulation that may bar some migrants from seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border if they already pass through another country. That is similar to a Trump-era policy. So the president is clearly stuck at home when it comes to Congress and that reform. And we saw in Mexico City this week during the summit calling for partners in the region to assist, and that is going to be necessary moving forward. Jake?
2: All right, Priscilla Alvarez at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now, Texas Republican Governor... Greg Abbott, Governor Abbott, so good to have you on. Thank you so much. Uh, On Sunday, when President Biden visited the border, you hand-delivered a letter to him. Uh, It was filled with criticism, demands, suggestions. It included a list of non-legislative border security actions that the president could take right now. Uh, Your first request would be to prosecute every single illegal entry and, quote, end the practice of unlawfully uh, paroling aliens en masse Unquote, um, as you know, no administration has ever been able to prosecute every single illegal entrant. Uh, the resources simply
13: aren't there. How do you propose that that suggestion would work in practice? Yeah, ju- just to make clear for the audience, uh, when you said non legislative proposals, uh, the, the uh, points that I made to the president uh, is that everything I asked the president to do is already part of law that exists in right. the United States, laws passed by Congress that the president has a sworn duty to uphold and to execute. So it's his responsibility to most of the resources to do several things. One that they could do that would reduce on the prosecutions is uh, to engage in immediate removals. They have the authority uh, to immediately remove uh, large numbers of people. What they are doing is something they do not have the authority to do. They do not have the authority to release in mass the large number of people that they are doing. And by doing so, the Biden administration is actually violating the law that Congress already passed. So one point I made to the president is without having to get any new law passed, he just needs to enforce the current laws on the books. Jake, second, uh, I pointed out that we, the state of Texas, already have two federal court orders against the Biden administration compelling them by law mm-hmm. uh, to enforce Title 42 as well as uh, the Remain in Mexico. Then I I pointed out one last thing for which uh, a a federal statute already exists, and all the president has to do is sign his name to it, Uh, and that is to designate uh, these drug cartels uh, as terrorist organizations, Uh, and that would automatically unleash additional powers that the United States has to go after these cartels. Let me ask you, many
2: of the migrants coming into the United States illegally today are different from the ones that were coming into the United States during the Trump administration, a lot of the current migrants are, are fleeing failed socialist states, such as Nicaragua or Cuba or Venezuela. Does that change the equation for you at all?
13: Well, don't let the facts that you just stated uh, misstate the reality of what's happening on the ground. Sure, there are people coming from those countries, But, Jake, we have people who are coming from more than 150 different countries across the globe. The primary way that we see the people we are encountering today to be different than those we've seen in the past uh, is those who uh, come uh, in military-style gear, uh, prepared to weather whatever type of challenge they're going to face as they cross the border and get to a further destination later on. Uh, We believe that these are people who are working perhaps in collaboration with the cartels or who may have nefarious uh, things they want to accomplish in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that must be pointed out for your audience, uh, Jake, and and that is that uh, under the Biden administration, there have been more people apprehended who were on the terrorist watch list than ever before. We're not very dangerous people who are coming across our border, the, the Biden administration is doing nothing to impede their entry into the United States. Well,
2: you're talking about apprehensions. And just for our viewers, and I, I know you know this better than I do, sir, but um, there is a difference between apprehensions, it's people who are caught, and gotaways is uh, the term, people who cross into this country and are not apprehended. Uh, I read this interesting study right. from the, let, let me just ask you about this. I read this interesting study from the libertarian think tank, uh, the Cato Institute, which said Trump's policies actually just drove migrants to cross illegally and hide and and get away, gotaways, as opposed to crossing and seeking asylum and, quote, Border Patrol recorded 41% more successful illegal entries in fiscal year 2019 than in 2016 because of those tougher Trump policies. And I'm just wondering your perspective. Do Do you think that that suggests that maybe the Trump border policies weren't, I'm not saying what's going on today is working at all. But that those policies also right. maybe were, were, were failing, but just in a different way.
13: I, th- I think it's a complete misunderstanding of, of what ha- was happening now as well as what happened before. So uh, I've been governor under President Obama, President Trump, as well as President Biden. And never have we seen the, the magnitude, the size of the number. Uh, of the people who are coming across the border. You know, you talked about there's a difference between uh, encounters or apprehensions uh, and gotaways. Remember this, uh, under uh, President Trump, uh, we had the lowest number of apprehensions in decades. This past year, we had by far the largest number of apprehensions ever. We had about as many apprehensions just this one past year alone as there are residents in Houston, Texas. And importantly, as you noted, in addition to those apprehensions, there are those gotaways. And I want to make sure that this point is made complete. I talked about uh, the the terrorist, the people on the terrorist watch list who were apprehended. The point is this: people who are on the terrorist watch list, they pay the cartels far more money to come across the border so that they will not be apprehended. Right. If we apprehended that that many people on the terrorist watch list, think how many who paid more, who evaded apprehension whatsoever, who may be wandering across the country trying to do evil to our country.
2: Um, you also say the border crisis is happening because Biden hasn't defended the United States uh, against, quote, invasion. Uh, the Dallas Morning News editorial board, which we should note, endorsed you for governor in 2018 and endorsed you uh, last fall as well. Uh, the Dallas Morning News editorial board said that accusation, quote, repeats ugly rhetoric characterizing the border crisis in military terms that risk portraying all migrants as enemy combatants, unquote. I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to that criticism. Sure.
13: Uh, a- actually, uh, what it does is to repeat w- verbiage, word by word, of what's contained in the United States Constitution. Uh, under Article 1, Section 10, uh, it authorizes uh, the-, the governor of a state uh, to declare an invasion uh, for purposes uh, of us as a state To be able to respond to what's going on on our border. Uh, It's clear uh, from the fact uh, that I I have now provided eight letters to the President of the United States asking for assistance for the state of Texas, and to each of those eight letters, he has refused to provide any assistance whatsoever. I've talked to Secretary Mayorkas about providing assistance to the state of Texas, uh, all on deaf ears. Texas has been left alone as some frontier outpost for us to have to grapple with ourselves, the record-breaking volume of millions of people coming across the border a year. Jake, if, if, if this is, is not an invasion, what is? Think about the, the volume of people coming across the border and look at what was happening on the ground in El Paso alone before the president showed up. It was all cleaned up, of course, right before he arrived, but they had c- completely overtaken all the streets uh, of downtown, not all, many of the streets of downtown El Paso, uh, in ways where control had been ceded to those who had come from another country.
2: Yeah, I guess the, I, I don't speak for the Dallas Morning News editorial board, but I guess their point was is that there's a huge crisis going on at the border. It's a huge humanitarian crisis as well. Again, I don't need to tell you this. And using the term invasion, even if it is constitutional in terms of its origin, makes it sound like these people are all coming to harm the American people when maybe some of them
13: are, but certainly most of them are not. Right. And listen, and th- that's a misunderstanding of what I was saying. Two, two quick points, and one is what I was doing was in, invoking a constitutional clause. The other is uh, we were talking about uh, those who were perpetuating the invasion, and that's the drug cartels. The, dr- the, the drug cartels are invading uh, the United States of America, and if Americans don't know that, they, they need to wake up. If nothing else, they need to wake up to the reality that just Texas law enforcement alone has seized enough fentanyl that it would be enough to kill every man, woman, and child in the entire United States of America. That could destroy us uh, as a country. And it's Texas, not the United States, that's stepping up and trying to do something about it. Fentanyl, obviously a huge, huge crisis in this country. Before you go, sir, and I do thank you for your
2: time and, and your willingness to talk, uh, I want to get a reaction to um, some reporting from CNN's Shimon Prokopas. This week, uh, he obtained a video of Uvalde School uh, Police Chief Pete Arredondo telling investigators the day after that horrible school shooting that he did not try to stop the gunman because "quote There's probably going to be some deceased in there, but we don't need any more from out here." Unquote. Uh, certainly, a, an upsetting uh, comment. Um,
13: what, what was your reaction when you heard that? Well, it just con- it confirmed two things that we knew and had proclaimed. One is that he was the incident commander uh, at at the school at the time that the shooting was taking place. Two, he failed to follow the Columbine Protocol, which is the well-established protocol in the United States as well as in the state of Texas, that when a shooting like this breaks out in a school, your job as a law enforcement officer is run to the shooter and take the shooter out. And by Pete Ardano's own words, he did not follow through uh, with that mandate. And that's exactly why, I don't. I can't remember if he resigned or was fired, but that's why he was relieved of his duties uh, and should not be holding a position of law enforcement in the future. Do you still have confidence in the head of uh, DPS, uh, Mr. McCraw? So what Mr. McCraw has done, uh, he has terminated uh, or relieved of their duty uh, several Texas Department of Public Safety officers who were on the scene, uh, who, in uh, Director McCraw's uh, opinion, did not uh, live up to the columbine protocol all right texas republican governor greg
2: abbott thank you so much for your time happy new year hope you'll come back and talk to us happy some new year more. to you also coming up thank house you. speaker kevin mccarthy giving republican george santos a gift as the pressure for santos to resign grows stay with us In our politics lead, that nagging, nebishy headache for House Republican leaders isn't going away because Congressman George Santos of New York keeps insisting he isn't going away. Despite growing calls for him to do so by Republican lawmakers over the laundry list of lies he told voters about his family, his education, his career, almost every single thing about him. CNN's Melanie Zenona is live for us on Capitol Hill. Melody, in the last day or so, six House Republicans, including five of his fellow New York Republicans, have called for him to step down, but not, not, Speaker McCarthy. Yes,
16: yeah, Speaker McCarthy is standing by his side. He told reporters earlier today that he thinks it should be up to the voters in Santos District to decide his political fate. But McCarthy did say that he's going to let this process play out in the House Ethics Committee, which is a bipartisan panel that really can only make recommendations about disciplinary action. Take a listen.
4: The voters of his district have elected him. He is seated. He is part of the Republican conference. There are concerns about it, so he will go before ethics. If anything is found to be wrong, he will be held accountable.
16: Now, there is a political calculation at play here as well, because if Santos were to step down, that would tee up a special election in a Biden-won blue district. And there is a very strong chance that Democrats could flip that seat, making the House GOP's razor-thin majority even slimmer. But despite that reality, Jake, there has been a growing chorus of Republicans calling on Santos to resign, including from some fellow members of the New York delegation, which is very notable, Jake.
2: And we should note, uh, former House Speaker Paul Ryan told me Earlier today on air that he thought uh, Santos should resign because he was a fraudulent candidate. Um, Santos also refused to reveal today the source of more than seven hundred thousand dollars that he donated to his own campaign. What do we know about that?
16: well that is one of the key questions that has been surrounding his financial disclosure forms one of the ethics complaints that was filed with the house ethics committee asked him to dig into those financial reports because it's unclear where that money came from that he loaned his campaign it appeared that it came overnight from year to year so there's a lot of questions about that but it's really hard to take Santos's word. He even said that he has led an honest life today, even though there's a mountain of evidence to the contrary. And he continues to remain defiant, telling reporters that he will not resign, Jake.
2: All right, Melanie Zinona on Capitol Hill with the latest in the embarrassment that is George Santos. The suspect in the murder of four University of Idaho students returns to court. Why he won't be back there again until June. Stay with us. In our national lead now, the suspect in the horrific murders of four University of Idaho college students was in court today. He's the only suspect in this mass murder case that still has so many unanswered questions. And as CNN's Josh Campbell reports for us now, investigators will now have more time to try to find some answers.
11: The suspect in the murders of four University of Idaho students almost two months ago, escorted by a police caravan to his court appearance Thursday. 28-year-old Brian Koberger walked into the courtroom for a status conference with his feet shackled, his hands free, dressed in prison orange, appearing with cuts from shaving his face, according to the sheriff.
16: Are you waiving your right to a speedy preliminary hearing and agreeing that that hearing can be held outside the 14-day period?
9: Yes. He's willing to waive the timeliness to allow us time to obtain discovery
16: in this case and be prepared.
11: It was Koberger's second appearance in as many weeks after he waived extradition and was returned to Idaho to face charges of four counts of first-degree murder and one count of burglary. He has not yet entered a plea. Koberger is a sole suspect of the brutal stabbings of Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Xana Kurnodal, and Ethan Chapin. Police still have not released any indication they have a murder weapon or a motive connecting the suspect to the victims. Koberger's Pennsylvania attorney said the suspect told him he believes he will be exonerated. The nearly seven-week manhunt ended last month in rural Pennsylvania, where authorities arrested Koberger at his family home. The horrific case has captivated the country and rocked the small college town of Moscow, Idaho, where students returned to campus this week after the winter break. Many students say the suspect's arrest now makes the
13: community feel safer. They got somebody who they think did it, and I, I breathe a sigh of relief. I'm pretty sure that my mom did the same thing.
11: Others say they remain vigilant. I'm
6: hanging out with some more people. Definitely staying in groups.
11: Now, Jake, I was in court here earlier today, seated behind the murder suspect. He made no outward sign of emotion, no eye contact with anyone in the courtroom other than the judge and his defense attorney. He will be back in this courtroom on June 26th. That will be that next critical hearing where we could learn new evidence about the prosecution's case. Until that time, the judge's ordered that he remain in the custody of the state with no bond. Jake? Hmm. Josh Campbell in Moscow,
2: Idaho. Thank you so much. Ominous images coming in from Selma, Alabama, an apparent tornado on the ground. The city now reporting extensive damages so far. Thankfully, no reports of deaths or injury, but authorities have issued a curfew as of dusk to survey the neighborhoods. Very hard hit, as you see in those images. More than a dozen tornadoes were reported today in Alabama alone, including eerie scenes like this across the southeast. and Georgia, flights were grounded briefly at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International due to storms. A lot of this From the same system that caused severe flooding in California earlier in the week, more than 35 million people in the United States under some level of threat for severe storms right now. From the links to a courtroom, the golf fight that involves Saudi Arabia, Bob Costas is going to join us to weigh in next. In our sports league today, a golf legal feud that is about so much more than putting a ball in a hole. It's heating up. Tomorrow, a California judge will hold a hearing on whether the Saudi-backed LIV golf organization needs to cooperate in the legal fight they and their players picked with the PGA Tour. Saudi Arabia has been trying to use LIV to gain greater Western and worldwide acceptance, despite Saudi Arabia's record of human rights abuses and Liv and its Saudi backers now find themselves in a legal war that involves the Saudi government, 9-11 families, and many of the top names in golf. As you may recall, Live Golf was founded in 2021, backed by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is estimated to be worth more than $600 billion. Last year, Liv, with that money, snagged several top PGA players to come on board. They included Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Koepka. The Human Rights Challenge Saudis did this by offering these players quite a bit of money. A lot of money. Blood money? Sure, maybe. A lot of it. The former number one golfer in the world, Dustin Johnson, made around $74 million in PGA Tour prize money through the course of his career after turning pro in 2007. Liv reportedly offered to pay him $125 million just for a four-year contract. Phil Mickelson was reportedly offered $200 million to take the jump to live. That's more than double what he had made in total throughout his entire 30-year career. Now, of course, this new golf organization threatening the fame and popularity of the PGA Tour can't afford to offer this cash. And they have a PR incentive because, of course, Saudi Arabia has a horrifying human rights record, including severe medieval restrictions on girls and women, repression of the LGBTQ community... A country whose elites had ties to al-Qaeda, the terrorist organization responsible for 9-11, whose crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, according to the CIA, ordered the killing of Washington Post journalist and U.S. resident Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. The Saudis do not want you to think about that when you think about Saudi Arabia. Last year, Live Golf held at least seven events, two of them at Trump Properties, one at Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey. The team championship was at the Trump National Doral in Florida. Donald Trump himself was seen with Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene at the Live tournament at his Bedminster hotel. Around that same time, Trump on his Truth Social website urged golfers to, quote, take the money from the Saudis and not stay loyal to the PGA. As this was happening, the PGA started suspending and putting restrictions on golfers who had signed on to Live. And here's where the legal trouble started. Last August, 11 golfers from LIV sued the PGA, challenging those restrictions. LIV then joined onto that lawsuit, arguing antitrust violations, asserting that the PGA had essentially a monopoly on golf. Then PGA countersued, saying that LIV had, quote, tortuously interfered with its contracts with golfers. The trial to hash all this out is set for January of next year, 2024, But that gets us to where we are now. Investors with LIV are arguing to the judge that they should not have to cooperate with the rules of discovery. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and its Public Investment Fund, or PIF, they're claiming they should not have to play a role in this at all, that they're not directly involved in LIV's day-to-day operations. But the PGA says that claim is false. PGA is saying the Saudis want to use the American justice system to fight the PGA, without abiding by the American justice system rules of discovery. We should note another recent development, dealing with the PR firm that the PGA hired to deal with this, a firm it's called Clout. Clout also represents a group of 9-11 families. And now live, the Saudis are trying to force Clout, through a subpoena, to turn over information about its relationship to those 9-11 family organizations. That's right, the Saudis suing a PR firm that represents 9-11 families, believe it or not. Live trying to determine whether the PGA is using connections to the 9-11 families to protest Live, they say. Which those families did at several tournaments last year, including at Trump's Bedminster Hotel. Those same families have for years, of course, been suing Saudi Arabia, accusing the kingdom of involvement in the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which the kingdom has hidden from the public. That's a charge the Saudis, of course, deny. Joining us now to talk about it all, CNN contributor, sportscaster Bob Costas. Bob, this seems like a clear example of what you and I have talked about, sports-watching the Saudi government trying to gain acceptance throughout the world using its flashy new golf organization while continuing to commit these horrifying human rights abuses.
17: True, and all the details that you just laid out, accurate as they are, are so dizzying they almost made my earpiece pop out, so I apologize for the spaghetti strand hanging over my shoulder. I can't quite figure that out. Yeah, the whole idea of sports washing is one we've talked about, and we should stipulate. Many U.S. companies, including some who are sponsors of the PGA, have business relationships with Saudi Arabia, and the United States and sports leagues in the United States are deeply invested in China. But that doesn't change the fact that these individual golfers had a choice to make. It wasn't as if they'd be on a bread line if they stayed with the PGA. They had a choice to make. What they did is not by any means illegal in accepting the money, but to many people it's unseemly given all the background which you just laid out. And while it's on the USOC for putting two Olympics in Beijing, another in Sochi, and it's on FIFA for putting a World Cup in Qatar... Those athletes, if they're Olympians or soccer players, have no choice but to go. The
2: golfers in this case had a choice. Former President Trump has hosted two Live events at his own Mm -hmm. properties, subjecting him to a lot of criticism from 9-11 families. What do you make of it?
17: Well, first of all, uh, we'll see what happens in the future. And if Live Golf develops some kind of following, Golf fans don't really seem to care about the outcomes of the events, but they've only had seven or eight. But in the first year, it's also a MAGA tour, as well as a live golf tour, including the former president, with his usual sensitivity and grace, thumbing his nose at the 9-11 families. Some 700 of those who perished on 9-11-2001 were from New Jersey, some of them in the immediate Bedminster area. And we'll see what turns up in court as uh, the live interests are are alleging that uh, clout has some relationship with the 9-11 families also representing the PGA, but the idea that the 9-11 families need a nudge from the PGA tour to protest what happened, to protest President Trump holding uh, an event at his course, and to push for years and years for the Saudi Arabians to acknowledge some sort of responsibility uh, for 9-11, all of that predates any of this live PGA uh, kerfuffle. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We'll see what comes out in court. But you would expect a former president, all but one, any former president, to be more sensitive uh, to the meaning, both to the country and to the individual families, of holding an event in the shadow, in effect, of the World Trade Center and then saying, former president of the United States, saying, you know, we never really got to the bottom of what happened on 9-11. We really should look into that.
2: Yeah, he, of course, was president. A well for four informed years. man. Yeah, he, he could have done something yeah. about that. Uh, something, someone else, by the way, who doesn't need the yeah. money, Donald Trump. How do you see this legal fight being resolved? I didn't catch the last thing you said, Jed. I'm sorry. How do you see the legal fight
17: being resolved? I, I don't have the expertise to say. Uh, the Saudis have, have a boundless amount of money, and so they will continue to attract big stars, at least for the time being, I'm sure.
2: And you and I are going to stay on top of this and keep talking about it and keep talking about it. Bob Costas, thank you so much, as always. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from once you get your podcasts. Just all two hours just hanging there like a, a ripe bunch of cherries. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer. He's in a place I like to call The Situation Room right after this short break.